Welcome to the Global Research News Hour. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station, CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. On this special holiday edition of the show, we're playing excerpts from the 14th Forum of the World Association for Political Economy, held this year at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg from July 19th to 21st. The World Association for Political Economy is an international academic organization founded by Marxist economists and related groups around the world. The mission of WAPE is to utilize modern Marxist economics to analyze and study the world economy, reveal its laws of development, and offer policies to promote economic and social progress on the national and global levels. One of the keynote speakers at this year's forum was Utsa Putnayak. Dr. Putnayak is a graduate of Oxford University. She served at the Center for Economic Studies and Planning in the School of Social Sciences at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi as a professor from 1973 until 2010. Her presentation was entitled Austerity and its consequences in the advanced and developing worlds, the present in the light of the interwar depression. In this address, Dr. Putnayak makes note of the decades of finance-driven globalization leading to the 2008 financial crisis, bearing a resemblance to the period between the two world wars. She notes the differential impacts that free trade, currency devaluation and income deflating policies have been having on poor populations and how growing movements of farmers, workers and women are pushing back against the austerity agenda. What follows is an abbreviated version of the talk she gave on July 19th. When the global financial crisis broke in 2008, that in substantive ways continues to this day because we are still not out of that crisis. Many scholars and analysts turned after many years to studying the interwar depression and they poured afresh over the works of Keynes and even those of Karl Marx. That is, people who were not in any sense leftists at all started reading uh, Marx in order to understand what to them appeared to be an inexplicable development. How could the advanced capitalist world plunge into a crisis like this? They were right to do so, for history is the only laboratory that the social scientist has. And very, many important parallels exist between the causes of the interwar crisis of capitalism and the present ongoing crisis of employment and livelihoods in the capitalist world. The most important causal similarity, in my view, is related to the dominance of finance over industry, and hence the universal implementation of income-deflating macroeconomic policies which are favoured by finance. We know that the classical theories of sound finance and balanced budgets completely determined economic policies up to the 1930s, and it was only the prolonged unemployment and depression that they caused that provided the stimulus for a counter theory of income determination, which was considered revolutionary at that time, put forward by Keynes, and also put forward independently by Mikhail Kaleski from Poland. However, after some three decades of post-war reconstruction informed by Keynesian perspectives on employment generation, that is roughly from about the end of the Second War to the mid-70s, the entire theoretical perspective and the policies implemented on its basis shifted back 
to a far more virulent and effective globally implemented income deflating agenda than ever seen before. There are important differences as well. The new globalization under the aegis of resurgent finance capital has seen bouts of bubble-based growth in the advanced world, the dot-com bubble, the housing bubbles and so on. And in the developing world, it has co-opted its elites and leaders into implementing policies that hurt the interests of their own masses, while concentrating incomes and assets further in the hands of the same minority. Financial interests have always opted for what uh, we may call, or rather I have called, vicious finance as opposed to virtuous finance, which means curtailing mass demand for a given level of output. And how do they curtail mass demand? Through measures of austerity or income deflation, which is what causes unemployment and destroys livelihoods. These measures that serve only a narrow sectional interest you know, the famous 1% to 5% as opposed to the 95% are being implemented worldwide in all countries under the advice of the international financial institutions and advanced, uh, you know, the Treasury. It used to be the Treasury in Britain earlier on. Now it's the Federal Reserve. They're being implemented worldwide regardless of what the initial level of incomes might be and how high initial unemployment might be. While, affecting, while it has affected the working masses badly everywhere in the advanced world as well as the developing world, the effects of income deflation have been particularly devastating for the global south because the initial incomes there were already so much lower than the global average. Keynes had regarded the financier as a parasitic financial rathier, much as a person with inherited landed property was a parasitic landed rathier. And he had called in rather strong terms for the euthanasia of the Ranthia. Keynes was, of course, no revolutionary, but he was extremely keen on avoiding any serious social conflict within the capitalist system that might threaten to alter the existing distribution of property and power. And he saw rising unemployment, an uncontrolled rise in unemployment, as precisely such a trigger for potentially destabilizing social unrest, which he wanted to avoid at all costs. This was especially the case in the political milieu of the time he was writing, strongly influenced by the epoch-making Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. As a practical solution for saving the capitalist system from social and political unrest arising from the unemployment inherent in the unregulated operation of the deflationary policies of finance capital, he advocated the opposite, state intervention in the form of public spending to generate employment and put more purchasing power in the hands of people, so as to keep up the level of activity in the economy. But the case was not in principle an advocate of state intervention uh, in general, but believed in the allocative powers of the market as pointed out by his biographer uh, Skidelsky, who is otherwise very sympathetic to him. And a clear indicator is that he opposed rationing even in wartime Britain. Decades earlier, in her seminal work, The Accumulation of Capital, Rosa Luxemburg had criticized Ricardo for assuming Say's law, namely that supply creates its own demand. And she had pinpointed the basic contradiction of assuming that accumulation could take place in a closed capitalist system consisting only 
of capitalists and workers at the hangers-on of the capitalists. She integrated into Marxist theoretical analysis two factors of the greatest importance, colonial exploitation and militarism as the twin pillars, twin interconnected pillars of the ability of the capitalist system to sustain its own expansion. So she said, how did the capitalist system get out of this problem of realization? It did so through colonial exploitation and through military expansionism. Uh, a third section is on the effects of interwar income deflation in advanced industrial and developing countries. The events leading up to the rise of fascism in Europe are well known. A very large part was played by the imposition of war reparations on Germany and the insistent insistence by the Germany's foreign creditors that austerity, namely income deflating measures of balancing budgets, be followed. Even when the agricultural depression starting from the mid-1920s was reduced, had reduced earnings and raised unemployment. Um, Charles P. Kindleberger, in his study, The World in Depression 1928-1938, points out that this kind of insistence by creditors on austerity uh, is the same as the idea of loan conditionality imposed on indebted countries uh, in the post-war period. So he says the idea of loan conditionality is not new. It had exactly the same features in the interwar period as now. As country after country saw their foreign earnings and domestic activity shrink, the solution which was put forward by the then financial said uh, the Treasury in Britain uh, was repeated rounds of deflation to cut the budgets and reduce imports. And this advice was followed throughout the capitalist world. This resulted in a cumulatively downward spiral of output and trade for all countries. Because if you cut the purchasing power of your own people through deflation, then they have less money to spend on imports, and that affects the exports of other countries, which in turn have less money to spend. So you have a vicious uh, downward spiral uh, where unemployment keeps rising. At its worst, up to one-fifth of the industrial workforce became unemployed in the advanced countries. And what is more, trade shrank to only a fraction of its original value within about four years. So let me skip to uh, a bit. The agricultural crisis of the late 1920s was made worse by the unremitting sterling demands which were kept up on India by Britain, even though its foreign earnings had crashed by 1931 to one-seventh of the earlier level. And these demands were met by very large distressed gold outflow. Other colonies of the metropolitan powers fared no better, as similarly the burden of depression in the core industrial countries was sought to be passed on to them. That is, even though its exchange earnings collapsed from between 1929 and 1933, Britain's demands on India did not. So the only way these demands could be met, uh, you know, these demands uh, being kept up meant there was a much larger current account deficit than normal, and the only way this could be met was by massive gold outflow. Further, on the outbreak of the Second World War, the burden of financing the Allied forces' war spending in South Asia was placed without any limit being specified on the Indian revenues, with a mere promise of repayment after the end of the war. 
The gigantic sums spent for the Allied forces amounted to more than 1,600 million pounds, which was a multiple of the entire Indian budget every war year, was raised through Keynesian profit inflation by printing money. In fact, this is a policy which Keynes himself advocates uh, in his treatise in, on money and in his book, How to Pay for the War. So uh, the notes were printed in England and uh, apparently uh, highly efficient uh, German firms were employed for printing the notes. But I have, that would be ironic indeed if it, that was true, but I have not been able to confirm this fact. And then the notes were flown over to India. This induced a hyperinflation that more than quadrupled rice prices over a mere 18 months. And since the population and most of this inflation was much higher in Bengal, where the Allied, Eastern India, where the Allied forces were stationed to counter the Japanese advance through Burma, this led to the death by starvation of 3 million laborers, fisher folk, and artisans in Bengal in British India during 1943 44. And this amounted to the death of 5% of the population. And this is a fact that has been completely expunged from the history books emanating from northern universities. Most of the people I met, uh, academics I met, hadn't even heard of the Bengal famine. And those who had didn't know that it was an engineered famine in order to raise uh, resources for financing the war. The civilian mortality alone in Bengal over two years, 43, 44, not counting the Indian armed forces, was seven times the 0.45 million estimated total mortality in Britain, including armed forces personnel, over the entire war period. And in Britain, it comprised less than 1% of its population. And out, uh, given the age structure of the population of Bengal, about 600,000 of the 3 million people who died were children below the age of 15 years. So more children died in this engineered profit inflation in Bengal then the entire mortality, including armed forces, in Britain for the entire period of the war. So it was a massive, uh, it was a massive, massive famine. While war-ravaged Europe underwent a long reconstruction boom aided by the US, the newly independent countries of today's global south had to cope with a colonial legacy of severe undernutrition and high unemployment. They abjured free trade, they protected their small producers from the destabilizing pull of the global market by putting in place quantitative restrictions on exports to ensure domestic availability of food and raw materials. Their governments undertook expansionary fiscal and monetary policies that is under Nehru. For example, in India for almost 40 years, the government was spending quite a lot out of the budget on development, including uh, irrigation, uh, including on investment as well as uh, rural development. It invested directly in infrastructure and irrigation and extended formal credit systems, banking systems in rural areas, uh, where of course much lower interest rates were charged than by the private money lenders. In India, these dirigist measures led to the building up of a diversified industrial base and to expansion of mass purchasing power. Even though our land reforms were inadequate, particularly in relation to China, where Victor Libet estimates 46% of total area was redistributed to the land poor and the landless, in India I estimate it was only about 12% which got redistributed. But nevertheless, the food security situation 
improved slowly until by the early 1990s per capita grain consumption had risen to 184 kilograms from the 1946 trough of 137 kilograms, indicating a gain of 450 kilocalories per day per capita. It was still one of the lowest in the world. But all these positive trends were to be completely reversed from the early 1990s onwards with the resurgence of uh, finance capital in the advanced countries and uh, their getting their claws uh, into the Indian economy using the temporary foreign exchange crisis caused by the Gulf War. It was a very minor crisis. It could have been tidied over quite easily, but it was made the occasion for the IMF to say that there was a tremendous foreign exchange crisis and therefore India had to go in for a structural adjustment loan and therefore it had to implement loan conditional policies, austerity in other words. In India, starting a little later from the 1990s, we find exactly the same outcomes of fiscal compression and free trade that we had in the colonial period. That is, we do not have direct political control anymore, but the economic out outcomes of the macroeconomic policies which have been imposed on us and to some extent which the elites have internalized and are now imposing themselves on their own people, those macroeconomic policies have had exactly the same consequences. That is, they have raised unemployment, there has been a massive shift of cropped area away from food grains for the, their own populations, both in Africa as well as in India. And as a matter of fact, there's been a decline in per capita grain production in China as well. One or two Chinese economists are now admitting that as China went in for export-oriented growth. Um, and fiscal contraction, of course, was instrumental in uh, compressing demand and raising unemployment. Free trade was instrumental in exposing our small producers to the ups and downs of global prices, a very high price volatility which small producers simply cannot tolerate. All the price stabilization measures which had existed earlier were done away with. That is the various commodity boards uh, which used to implement a minimum support price for farmers. Farmers were told, you don't have to sell to the commodity boards, but if the global price is very low, goes down very low and it doesn't cover your cost of production or your consumption needs, the government will purchase from you at a minimum support price which will assure you uh, of an income. So all those price stabilization measures were uh, destroyed. And in addition, a fiscal con contraction was actually legal, made a legal thing. Uh, for example, in India, there is this mindless FRBM Act, the Fiscal Responsibility and Budget Management Act, which was notified in 2004, which mandates a reduction of the government's fiscal deficit to a very low level below 3% of GDP, regardless of the state of excess capacity and of unemployment. Just as classical theory in the 1920s had done as a solution, so-called solution to unemployment in austerity measures of cutting public spending that had the actual effect of raising unemployment further. Instead of completely open colonized economies then, today we have relentless pressure both from within the World Trade Organization and bilaterally exercised by advanced countries that barriers to trade be dismantled by developing countries on the false premise, promises of benefits to follow. 
To this day, Ricardo's theory of comparative cost advantage is quoted to push free trade. Mindless of the fact that the theory contains a fallacy at its very heart, which makes it incorrect, that it, it assumes that all countries can produce all goods. Otherwise, you cannot even uh, define cost, leave alone comparative cost. But what is the cost of production of coffee in, uh, in Canada? It's zero, because you cannot ever pr produce coffee or a range of tropical goods. So comparative cost cannot even def be defined. It cannot be made the basis for saying that you will benefit from following comparative cost advantage. So we have been taken for a ride. It is not very clear whether Ricardo himself took himself for a ride, whether it was intentional or not on his part, but that doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is that the theory is wrong. So several major adverse results have followed. Firstly, the growth of the material productive sectors of the economy, agriculture and manufacturing in my country has slowed down. And uh, now it is the tertiary sector, the services, which accounts for over 60% of GDP. Manufacturing has remained stagnant in contributing to GDP. Um, and of course, agriculture has actually declined, even though it continues to uh, employ 60% of the world. Not employ really, but it has to provide the subsistence requirements of 60% of um, subsistence requirements of the majority of the Indian population. The strident talk of high GDP growth rate in India has ignored, and I'll be winding up now in just a couple of minutes, I know you're very tired. The strident talk of high GDP growth rate in India has ignored the extreme concentration of assets and incomes resulting from market-oriented reforms. With a more severe impact in India that did not have the cushion of China's initial egalitarian distribution after its revolution. The most severe outcomes in India have been in the area of unemployment and nutritional decline. While our informal sector has always seen underemployment of labor, open unemployment of job seekers has now exceeded 6% of the labor force, according to reliable data which the government has suppressed until the elections were held in May and only released after the elections were over and it had come back to power. So the 6% of the labor force of open unemployment is roughly a trebling, three times higher than the earlier figure. A festering agrarian depression has been going on for two decades and exposure to global price volatility through free trade measures that I mentioned has led to farmers committing debt, owing to debt, uh, farmers committing uh, suicide owing to debt to the tune of 15 to 17,000 every year. So the total since 1997 now is around 330,000 farmers in India who have committed suicide. So the effects of income deflation and primary export thrust are visible, just as in the colonial period. In a squeeze on mass demand, a clear decline in per capita food trade absorption, starting from the mid-1990s, and the gains of four decades of the earlier state-directed uh, policies of expansionary fiscal policies, protection to producers, they were completely, have been completely wiped out as far as food security is concerned. The annual per capita cereal consumption for direct use for the entire population fell from 184 kilograms re reached by the early 1990s to 152 kilograms by 2011. 
A slight improvement since then has not reversed the trend. India now has the lowest absorption of cereals for all uses, food, feed and other uses globally, according to the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization data. It is, this is a different data source from the one I mentioned earlier. The one I mentioned earlier was the Indian data source. So for all uses, it is 176 kilograms in India in 2011, compared to 212 kilograms for the least developed countries, so we are lower than the least developed countries. This is something economists don't talk about in our country, the government of course does not. And 226 kilograms for Africa. So Africa now has about 50 kilograms per capita higher food grain consumption than India does. China consumes at the global average level of around 330 to 340 kilograms, while the comparable figure for the USA is 1300 kilograms of cereal consumption for all uses. So you can just see the enormous difference. 176 in India, 1300 kilograms in uh, USA. So what is the solution? Just one paragraph, the way out of the morass. Because neoliberal policies dictated by finance capital globally have created the present long drawn out problems of employment or rather unemployment, livelihoods and deepening poverty. Clearly only the complete reversal of these policies can lead to any improvement in the condition of the masses. In particular, a substantial drive to increase public development expenditures and social sector expenditures on the part of the government are obvious preconditions for an expansion of the domestic market and restoration of mass purchasing power. For this, coordinating the economy selectively from the global market is, necessary, is a necessary condition for price stabilization measures to work. For which there has, been, there has to be a determined resistance to the current attempts of the advanced countries through the WTO in particular to force India and developing countries to give up their systems of public stocking of food grains for food security uh, purposes. You know, in the WTO now, there's been a prolonged, uh, as it were, battle going on between the USA in particular, but also other industrial nations and the developing countries because the USA is putting forward false calculations to argue that developing countries, particularly India, gives a, uh, is violating the agreement on agriculture by giving subsidies to its farmers, which is not true at all. The US itself gives massive subsidies, so it doesn't call it subsidies. And he says that uh, the WTO has to punish India. This was a complaint it made in May 2018. And basically their objective is that developing countries should give up completely public procurement and distribution of food grains, uh, which they maintain for food security reasons, because the advanced countries want to dump their surplus production of grain on developing countries. They want us to become markets for their grain, and they want us to divert our land to producing a huge range of tropical crops which they could not produce in the past, which they cannot produce now, and which they will never be able to produce in future. They simply cannot import substitute because the climate will not allow it. So what we need to do in India is to spell out a set of universal and justiciable rights. And the policies appropriate for realizing these rights in practice need to be worked out and to be struggled for by all progressive forces. The set of basic rights must include the right to adequate food and nutrition, which has been severely undermined, as I mentioned, the right to employment, the right to adequate shelter, 
the right to education, the right to healthcare, and the political right to protest against injustice without being put in jail. So many of our students uh, and others who have been working in the trade union movement for the poor uh, have been actually jailed. And um, uh, Professor Krishna Bharadwaj, who founded the Center for Economic Studies and Planning and whose daughter went uh, to do trade union work among mine workers in a very backward area, uh, has been in jail now for uh, over one year on trumped up charges. So what we are seeing is also a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, undermining of uh, civil rights and democratic rights. The Marxist, uh, the question is, uh, these, uh, these, uh, can these rights be realized without a revolution? These fundamental rights to, every, to which every citizen should be entitled, uh, are these rights at all realizable without substantial redistribution of property? That is what a Marxist would ask. And the Marxist perspective would give the answer in the negative. But I would say that so high are the living standards and incomes of a very tiny minority, which now accounts for the bulk of assets, both real and financial, and so concentrated has income become, that even traditional redistributive measures through taxation on the one hand, and subsidies for the poor on the other would go a long way uh, as uh, to, uh, to uh, against the uh, against the immiserization of the poor that we see now. That was Dr. Utsa Patnaik, Professor Emeritus at Jawaharlal Nehru University, presenting before the World Association for Political Economy Forum on July 19, 2019, at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. And this is the Global Research News Hour, heard every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on affiliate radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can download a copy of the show by visiting globalresearch.ca and following the links to the Global Research News Hour. Also presenting at the 14th Annual Forum of the World Association for Political Economy was Michael Hudson. Dr. Hudson is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. He's acted as an advisor on finance and tax law to governments worldwide, including Iceland, Latvia, and China. He's also the author of J is for Junk Economics from 2017, Killing the Host, from 2015, and his 1968 classic, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire. Dr. Hudson's keynote was called, America Threatens to Self-Destruct If Other Countries Don't Obey It, and this lecture dealt with how rival countries are attempting to defend themselves from the policies of financialization that has led the U.S. to the point of collapse. Here's an abbreviated version of Dr. Hudson's lecture, recorded on July 21st, 2019. The reason that uh, there cannot be a revival of uh, manufacturing industry in this country is simply because the accumulation of debt has gone so large that uh, and the uh, price of housing and the privatization of monopolies and health insurance has become so expensive that if uh, American workers were to get all of their food, all of their clothing, all of their transportation for nothing, 
for f zero. They still couldn't compete with uh, uh, foreign, with China or even Europe, because uh, out of every paycheck, uh, they have to pay up to 40% of their income for rent. 15% is taken off uh, wage, uh, wage withholding for uh, social insurance and uh, medical care, another 10% for uh, payments of uh, interest and debt. Uh, so only a small portion of the uh, workers' budget is available to be spent on the goods and services uh, they produce. So the United States is left in a, a very high, high cost position and has become something that is different from the industrial capitalism that Marx talked about uh, in his day. Uh, industrial capitalism has become finance capitalism. Uh, and the roots of finance capitalism, the basic analysis for it, uh, is all outlined in Marx's volume three of Capital and volume two. What has happened since World War II was something that Marx uh, could not have expected. He thought that uh, banking and finance capital would be industrialized, would be uh, that these, uh, he described finance as external. Finance existed in, in Babylonia in the third millennium BC. It existed, interest-bearing debt was in Rome and Greece. Uh, but all of this debt, Marx described, was simply parasitic. It, it took money and it accumulated and it grew by the mathematics of compound interest. And uh, Marx collected everything that was written in his day on the mathematics of compound interest. And he said it grows inexorably, by purely mathematical laws of its own power uh, and is not part really of the capitalist system. But if uh, the banks made productive loans to industry where the, uh, cr the bank credit provided the industrial borrower with the means of earning a profit able to repay the debt, then uh, that would uh, become productive and that would become a basis that even socialism uh, could uh, uh, could apply, and many uh, of the, his, Marx's followers in the 19th century expected the banks to be uh, the planning center, the uh, incipient planning center of uh, the socialism to come. And this view was based largely on the German experience where there was a, a combination of uh, uh, the, the Reichsbank, uh, the large banks, uh, the military uh, for uh, credit uh, for armaments, especially for uh, the building of navies, uh, and, uh, and heavy industry. And it was uh, largely a uh, government-coordinated uh, uh, development in Germany, which seemed to be uh, headed towards the leadership of the world. This terrified England because England uh, really had failed to uh, do what uh, it seemed potentially able to do in 1848. Uh, it wasn't able to get rid of the banks. By the uh, time that, uh, in 1914, uh, when the uh, World War I broke out, there was a, a set of articles in the Economic Journal in England worrying that England was going to lose uh, World War one, the war, because its financing was so predatory, so greedy, so corrupt, 
uh, and its behavior was so short-term, hit-and-run, that it could not possibly uh, uh, compete against uh, an economy that had uh, basically planned productive credit as Germany had. Uh, the uh, stockbrokers in England were notorious for uh, putting people into financial, their customers into financial frauds and just hitting and, run hitting and running for taking over companies and insisting that uh, the companies pay all of their uh, income out as dividends, not reinvest uh, uh, their uh, profits, not uh, accumulate productive power, but rather simply build up debt. And uh, uh, the Marxists were in the lead of describing this phenomenon of finance capitalism that uh, at the time seemed to be a perversion of uh, industrial capitalism, but turned out to be uh, something almost uh, uh, entirely different. Uh, and we all know the result of that. That was World War II. And in World War II, the United States set out uh, to dominate the world and make itself the center, sort of a wheel and spoke uh, system. Uh, the United States called this globalization or internationalism. Uh, but the role of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund was uh, not internationalist at all in the spirit that uh, we just heard describing the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the idea uh, of, of the World Bank was not to promote development, but to promote dependency. Uh, the uh, leading uh, assumption of the World Bank was under no case would domestic currency loans be made to develop uh, agricultural self-sufficiency in countries to become independent and grow their own food. From the very beginning, the United States wanted uh, uh, loans to go only to the export sector. Third world countries, Latin America, Africa, the Near East, were told to depend on American grain, and the, the loans were only for uh, export crops, uh, the, uh, to build railroads and roads to uh, lower the cost of making exports so that America could get raw materials uh, from other countries. And uh, America became, uh, is, is it had accused uh, England of wanting to make it in uh, the 19th century, hewers of wood and drawers of water. That was how the Bible uh, phrased it. So, uh, you know, what has happened uh, as a result? Well, uh, we had a dependency system here. The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, at the time America uh, emerged from uh, World War II, uh, it had by far most of the uh, gold supply of the world. And at that time, uh, the uh, domestic money uh, created by central banks was based uh, on gold. Uh, the United States uh, had such a dominant position that by the time the, Viet the uh, Korean War broke out, in 1950, the United States had accumulated 75% uh, of the world's uh, gold supply. Uh, this meant that other countries uh, were facing austerity. Uh, the Americans expected quite correctly that uh, as a result there was going to be rising uh, social revolution uh, in these countries. So uh, they be they, uh, the American free market planners realized uh, the, the first premise of free market economic theory. I don't know why this is left out of the premise, out of the textbooks that they teach. The first premise is you cannot have a free market unless you're willing to assassinate 
everyone who opposes you. Unless you can uh, uh, have a regime change for any country that does not follow a free market. All of Roman history is this, the 5th, 4th, 3rd, 1st century BC, every single advocate of debt cancellation, of uh, land redistribution, of democracy uh, was, was killed. Uh, the United States immediately set up a regime change in Guatemala, overthrowing uh, the government, that uh, Arben's government that wanted land reform, uh, and it uh, came in in support of Br uh, British Petroleum in, uh, or, uh, in uh, Iran and overthrew the elected Mossadegh regime uh, and it's, it uh, installed uh, dictators throughout Latin America long before uh, you had Paris Jimenez in Venezuela, you had everyone there. If you look at the actual uh, growth in GDP, all of the growth in American GDP since 2008 has only gone to the top 5% of the American economy. Wall Street, the finance, insurance, and real estate finance sector, the 95% uh, the of the economy has shrunk. And if you say, well, what is this GDP growth? Well, one big element is uh, late fees charged by banks on uh, uh, debtors that can't pay. Uh, when banks charge a late fee, uh, the GDP uh, economists say that's providing a service of taking a risk to provide the economy with credit. Uh, the other, may, maybe 8% of the GDP, is uh, the increased value of, uh, ho of homeowners' uh, uh, homes. In other words, uh, they're asked, if you, had, if you own your home, what if you had to pay rent for your home? How much rent would you have to pay? And as housing prices are inflated on credit, uh, the houses... Uh, Price goes up, the rents go up more and more, and so uh, this is uh, this increase in GDP is uh, the increased value of uh, homeowners' uh, living conditions, even though it's the same home, no new home has been built, nothing has changed except uh, uh, the inflation of housing prices. So basically, the American, what passes for GDP growth in the United States is simply the increased pr asset pricing, uh, the inability of uh, labor and industry to pay debts causing uh, uh, late fees, and, uh, and uh, what uh, the classical economists called unearned income, economic rent. So we're in a rentier society, and America's relationship to the rest of the world is that of a rentier, that is a rent extractor. It lives off the interest and uh, the property that it can grab as a result of its international credit. It lives off the dollar standard, a free ride. Uh, other countries are, uh, uh, after America went off gold in 1971, uh, countries uh, had to keep their uh, foreign reserves in some kind of risk-free uh, asset, and the only risk-free asset large enough uh, was the U.S. dollar. And the reason there were so many U.S. dollars in the world is they were pumped into the world economy by means of the balance of payments deficit. Now, balance of payments deficit, that sounds uh, abstract, but in practice, the entire deficit Every cent from the 1950s, 1960s onward was military. 
In other, the private sector is just about in balance. But the, uh, America, through its 800 military bases over the world and its uh, supply of dirty tricks and its, uh, the American Foreign Legion uh, is very expensive. The Foreign Legion is ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, and the other uh, terrorist groups. So all of this is creating a uh, huge uh, influx of dollars and other country, these dollars end up uh, by the free market uh, being spent largely in China, uh, Asia and other countries and America uh, until about uh, a year ago said all you countries can uh, uh, earn as much as you want by running your own balance of payments trade surpluses but you have to provide send all of your surplus to the United States by buying US Treasury bonds to finance not only the US budget deficit by the Treasury bonds, but to finance our expenditure on encircling you with our 800 military basis. That's called uh, circular flow. Uh, and that was uh, the definition of equilibrium uh, that they had. Now, you can imagine my surprise uh, uh, a few months ago when Donald Trump came out and accused China of manipulating its currency uh, by buying US Treasury bonds. And Trump's argument was uh, somehow he read an economics textbook. <laughs> this was a disaster. He was very successful being a petty criminal throughout his life. He made uh, his money by uh, not paying his workers, by not paying his suppliers, uh, and, and he'd go to a supplier's, offer 50 cents on the dollar, and say, well, if you don't like it, sue me. And in the United States, it costs about $50,000 to mount a court case to collect. And uh, uh, he ended up cheating people. He didn't pay the banks. He defaulted. No bank in the United States will lend to Donald Trump. No contractor in New York City, where I live, will uh, deal with him. No labor will deal with him. Uh, he thought that it worked for him, it'll work for the United States. Why can't he? Uh, all you have to do uh, is uh, uh, promise the moon, uh, which is called equilibrium, I guess, for economists, and uh, uh, then say, well, we, uh, here's what we're going to pay you. Uh, it, it doesn't, it obviously uh, is not working, but uh, this puts other countries, including China, in a dilemma. What is it going to do with all of the dollar payments that it gets from other countries in Asia, in the third world, in the United States? Where, where, uh, it, what will it do with them? Well, a few years ago, it said, well, the natural thing for us to do is what the United States does. We will recycle the, uh, this, uh, these dollars by buying uh, foreign, ind foreign industry. They tried to buy uh, uh, oil, not oil, filling stations, oil distributors uh, in America. America said that's a national security threat. Uh, there was a discussion in Congress. They said anything China owns that makes them richer is a threat to our national security. Well, this is just what uh, it was said in Winnipeg in 1919. Any improvement in the status of labor or uh, to anyone but us is a threat to our security and our domination. So China is considered a threat to our national security by being prosperous. 
this is not uh, a case of the most efficient economy in the world spreading its way of uh, production into other countries. It makes other countries uh, essentially it's, Colonies. It's a form of financial neocolonialism. Uh, and the advantage of neocolonialism uh, in a financial means is you don't have to uh, uh, draft an army. In fact, the whole character of military, uh, of control, has shifted away from military now. Uh, the last uh, draft in America was in the Vietnam War. And if America tried to invade Venezuela or any other country, uh, you would have the same kind of riots uh, in America uh, uh, that you had during the Vietnam War. So uh, that's why America needs either a fo foreign legion or what's called client oligarchies, uh, like you have uh, uh, it's trying to install throughout Latin America uh, and for other countries. What is amazing is uh, the lack of response by uh, Europeans. Uh, the, all of this has been uh, celebrated since about 1980 as the end of history. Uh, and this uh, end of history book uh, came out right after uh, the Soviet Union uh, dissolved. And uh, that was taken by America to say, well, we've won. Uh, the end of history means there is no alternative. And they'll make sure there's no alternative because American policy is to make sure that history will not change, that there won't be an alternative to the current uh, way of doing, uh, of doing things. So this is not a survival of the fittest. It looks like it's uh, the survival of uh, the, parasi the parasites. It's a survival of an unproductive, predatory uh, economy. And this, uh, you hesitate, if you're making a forecast about the future, you, the natural tendency is to assume that everyone will act in their self-interest and everything will uh, grow uh, better and better. But that's not happening. If you looked at Rome, exactly the same thing happened uh, in Rome. Uh, finally, by the first century, uh, it, it got, there was such a land grab, such a monopolization of land, such a power of creditors, uh, in, uh, every, in revolution after, uh, after revolution, uprising uh, after uprising, uh, by Catiline, uh, by Dolabella, by, by uh, everybody expected Caesar to cancel the debts, and uh, he was killed uh, by the oligarchy for wanting to be even, even moderate. Uh, you know, the result of uh, what then was uh, neoliberalism, uh, meaning uh, the vested interests are in control, was the dark age in feudalism. So the question is whether the uh, American uh, plan, the uh, neoliberal economics, is going to lead to a new kind of feudalism and how other countries can protect themselves. Uh, Rome uh, survived for a century by looting its more productive, uh, richer provinces like Asia Minor uh, and Gaul. Uh, but finally, there was no more money to loot, and the economy just collapsed uh, from within. And in a way, this, this problem is inherent in uh, Western civilization. It made Greece and Rome different from Sumer, Babylonia, uh, Persia, uh, the Near East. All the Near Eastern countries, uh, when they had a uh, debt problem, uh, the rulers would step in and cancel the debts, and they would reverse 
all of the uh, land transfers where people had lost their land to the, uh, the creditors, uh, the land would be returned to them. Uh, this was uh, every single ruler of Sumer and Babylonia uh, in the third millennium and second millennium did this. Uh, this became the jubilee year of the Bible, which was taken over word for word from the Babylonian laws. Uh, it remained in force in the uh, Constantinople, uh, the, the uh, Eastern uh, Christian Empire, but not in the West. The West has the concept of progress, and the, uh, the, this ideal of progress is irreversibility. You can't go back. And if you can't go back, that means right now, if the debts, uh, uh, this was the problem that President Obama faced himself with. Uh, if you uh, he'd, he promised to write down the debts of the junk mortgage loans, of the fictitious loans, and uh, keep the, uh, uh, the population, the uh, homeowners in their house. But then he said, no, progress means you can't cancel the debts, you let the debts completely go up. No wealthy, no member of the 1% will lose, uh, lose their money. That means the 99% has to lose their property. And uh, President Obama invited uh, his Wall Street backers uh, to the White House and said, I'm the only person standing between you and the pitchforks, uh, the, the mob with pitchforks. These are the people that Hillary Clinton called the deplorables. Uh, it's what uh, Obama called uh, the voters for him. And uh, the, uh, the result was uh, the role of the American president uh, was basically to convince the population that somehow all of this neoliberal uh, stagnation uh, uh, that they're experiencing is all for the good. And you have a, a the economics profession, sort of looking at all of history this way. Uh, all of you have heard about Rome falling into the Dark Age, but there's a new economic history of neoliberals that said, well, it wasn't so dark. If you look at uh, the rich people, there are a lot of big manners and there was a lot of trade in uh, uh, nice ceramics, all Near Eastern. All the traders were Near Eastern. All the, all the money that uh, Rome could extract from its colonies was sent to India uh, or uh, further on, on east. But uh, the, uh, they say that the rich people were, had such an enjoyable life that we really can't call it a dark age. It was only a dark age for the 99% of the people. And, uh, but look at the 1%. You know, uh, that's what we have in the museums. Uh, and uh, was it all, all worth it or not? So the question is, what does China do uh, in response to all of this? Uh, well, obviously, the first thing it's doing is uh, uh, agreeing with uh, Donald Trump. Yes, we're going to de-dollarize. Uh, we're, we're, we're certainly not going to keep our savings uh, in loans to the U.S. Treasury that enable you to finance and to encircle us uh, with military bases. Uh, so uh, de-dollarization is uh, uh, one aspect. Uh, China's not going to ask uh, the International Monetary Fund uh, to plan its economy and tell it uh, what industries to privatize and sell off uh, to private uh, uh, managers who will uh, simply uh, increase uh, the prices that uh, China has to pay for its electricity, transportation, and others. So, and, and in fact, it's set up uh, its own uh, independent bank as a byproduct of the, uh, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. It has its own bank. Uh, and its bank is uh, financing uh, actual tangible investment instead of uh, financing uh, uh, dependency. Uh, it, 
In response to the unilateral uh, U.S. trade war and protectionist tariffs, uh, China has the option of uh, countervailing uh, sanctions. Uh, the United States already has uh, uh, large investments in China. Uh, it, the balancing factor would be for China to say, okay, you've taken our, you've grabbed our money, we'll just take uh, what you have here and call it, uh, call it even. Uh, there's uh, obviously a cyber war uh, also. Uh, uh, the, uh, as you know, the American uh, CIA and uh, national security system have worked with the uh, uh, Silicon Valley to install back doors so that it can spy on uh, every other uh, country. Uh, what makes uh, China's uh, uh, Huawei so undemocratic is it doesn't have spyware for the United States. And uh, so uh, that obviously is a threat uh, to the U.S. Uh, control. So uh, you have that. Uh, in place of the uh, class war and the austerity program in the U.S., uh, China's uh, 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 kept its credit in the public domain. This means that in America, when the company, you've seen the wave of bankruptcies of American corporations uh, recently, especially in the uh, retail sales. When uh, an American corporation goes out, a hedge fund or a vulture fund comes in and buys it at a fraction of the cost. In China, there are many uh, uh, industrial plants that have been unable to pay the debt. But because the creditor is the government, the Bank of China can simply run debt, write down the debt. It writes it down so that it keeps the uh, uh, industrial employer in business. It doesn't sell it off to uh, a hedge fund uh, or, an, uh, or an American. Uh, that, uh, China realizes what Marx had uh, expected to be the future for uh, banking and finance. It's a public utility. Uh, it's created electronically, uh, basically credit. It, it's cre any bank can simply uh, uh, make a loan and uh, create money. China's already doing that. Uh, and the, the final capstone is that uh, China's developed an alternative monetary theory, uh, economic theory, to neoliberalism. Uh, and that's Marxism. Marxism looks at the overall context. It places it in the context of politics uh, so that it looks at the economy as a system, not as, uh, as parts to be carved up uh, and uh, essentially looted. So uh, as long as uh, China can continue to uh, develop its uh, monetary policy, its trade policy, its uh, foreign policy and uh, military policy in keeping with this overall view of systemic uh, uh, growth, uh, it's, it's going to be operating in a way that creates its own future instead of passively uh, surrendering to uh, America's neoliberal future. was Michael Hudson speaking in Winnipeg on July 21st, 2019 as part of the 14th Forum of the World Association for Political Economy, also marking the centenary of the Winnipeg General Strike. To see videos of keynotes Utsa Patnayak and Michael Hudson, you can visit the site geopoliticaleconomy.org and follow the links to WAPE Conference. To listen to this program again, please visit the site globalresearch.ca and scroll down to the Global Research News Hour tab and find all our archived shows which are available for download. 
Some of the recording was courtesy of Paul Graham. Find his videos at Paul S. Graham, the YouTube channel. Music this week was Shifting Sands from Purple Planet Music, available from the website purple-planet.com. To leave your feedback, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Join us again next week.